Every once in a while, as a psychotherapist, you come across an author whose work really resonates with you. It both challenges, inspires, and makes a mark on your way of practicing. For me, Dr. Karen Moroda is one of those authors. Dr. Moroda is a psychologist and psychoanalyst in private practice in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She's the clinical professor of psychiatry at the Medical College of Wisconsin and is the author of four books, including The Power of Countertransference, Seduction, Surrender, and Transformation, Psychodynamic Techniques, and her new book, The Analyst's Vulnerability. I first read her work in 2005 while in grad school to become a therapist and was immediately drawn in. I've returned to her books countless times throughout my career and almost always recommend them to therapists I supervise or consult with. Throughout her work, but particularly in her new book, The Analyst's Vulnerability, there is a consistent call to therapists to examine our own motivations for being therapists, to let go of the need to be perfect, to embrace our own humanity, and to show up with our patients in a deeply authentic, courageous, and relational way. She often pushes against whatever the current popular fad in our field happens to be, and points out that we therapists are prone to avoid conflict by hiding behind our theories, techniques, and tools. In her new book, she writes, we have never focused on the natural conflicts that arise in any relationship, including the analytic one, in part because it would necessitate the examination of our own needs, desires, and shortcomings. In my opinion, this book is a must-read for any psychotherapist who takes seriously the idea that our patients are far more than symptoms, thoughts, behaviors, and for those of us who believe that our role in the work is far more dynamic than simply providing advice and solutions. In this episode, we dive into all of these themes and more. I am really excited to bring you my interview with Dr. Karen Moroda. Dr. Morota. Good morning, Dr. Nixon. How are you? <laughs> good, good. Um, I'm not quite a doctor, but You're uh, not. You know, <laughs> I play one on TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a this is a real treat for me to be able to sit with you in this way and have this conversation. Um, I I don't know if you know this about me, but I went to the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and have a master's in counseling psychology. Um, I graduated in 2007, and so first encountered your work there in 2005. I read The Power of Countertransference first and um, was just really moved by, by the book and by what you, it seemed like you were calling therapists to even back then. I think, um, it, and it compelled me to pick up your next book, Seduction, Surrender, and Transformation, and similar, just like I felt an inspiration. I felt um, a sense of, of freedom in the work that uh, I don't know that I felt from other other authors or other things that I was reading at the time. And so there was something about your your writing and your presence in that way in the analytic space in particular that just felt really freeing, um, challenging for sure as well, I would say. 
Um, so all of that to say, you in one form have been in my <laughs> sort of psyche as a therapist for a lot of years. And um, so I'm really delighted to, to have you on and I'm grateful that you took the time. Well, thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And nothing, nothing gratifies me more than having younger therapists say, you really helped me to do the work, you know, yeah. because that's my objective in writing. Hmm. From the, from the time I was a very young therapist, right out of internship, I realized that nothing had really prepared me for the actual work. Yeah, I can, I can resonate with that. I had probably the first two years out of grad school, actually sitting with, with patients for the first time, you know, you leave, you leave school and you have this sort of ideal sense of what the work is going to be like. And then you sit with real humans and, and things go very differently or sometimes sideways. And there's this real disorienting feeling that can be present for a therapist that, you know, thinks that they have, have, you know, the tools they need to do the work. And, and then you, you realize like, uh, I, this isn't about tools or techniques. There's something else going on here. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think your, your writing was sort of a, a buffer for me in that way too, when things felt really disorienting and I didn't know like what, you know, what the hell am I doing? You know, I would have session after session where I was like, I don't know if I would pay somebody to do what I just did, you know, like that thought went through my mind quite a bit. And, um, and so with that came anxiety at different times and, you know, at, at other times, sort of this sort of mild depression and doubt of whether or not I should be in this field. Um, and, you know, I think that's really normal and needs to be normalized. And I feel like in, in your new book, there's a, there's part of your book that does that, you know, and when you're talking about, this idea of the therapist's need for perfection and um, how that's a setup for failure and a recipe for, you know, disaster in the therapeutic relationship. So um, well, I think too, especially, I would say one of the major things that we are not introduced to in training is just how, how emotionally overwhelmed we'll be mm -hmm. in one form or another, when we're really working with actual patients hour to hour and day to day. Yeah, they don't tell you that in school. No, and and the the people they set us up with in training, you know, they're carefully selected. Those patients know we're in training, and it's a completely different experience when you when you graduate and you're really out there on your own. It's absolutely. absolutely. And we are not. I don't know that anything could entirely prepare us for that, but I I think we could do a much better job than we do. I absolutely agree. Um, and I think the title of your new book, The Analyst's Vulnerability, um, is such a, a wonderful title around that whole idea. Um, I, I would love to jump into chatting about that Sure. and was thinking maybe we can, I'll just kind of run through the layout of the book and then we'll see where that takes us. Does sure. that sound okay? That's fine. Yes. Great. So in part one, you you call it the the analyst as a person. And under that you have the analyst's early experiences, managing the analyst's needs, the analyst's narcissistic vulnerability. Um, and so you really kind of set a frame of like, there's a, there's a human behind the analyst or therapist. It's not, you know, like, I think there's <laughs> this sense of, um, you know, we, at my practice, we interview therapists a lot for coming, coming here to work and that sort of thing. And 
So we often will ask, like, why did you decide to become a therapist? And the answer we usually get is something like, well, I just really love to help people. And I've always been a good listener. And from your book, what I'm getting a sense is maybe there's more to it than just that. Um, and so that, that first part I felt was really humanizing and, and really important. And then in part two, you talk about the analyst as a clinician. Um, and you talk about conflict and negative counter-transference, um, deconstructing enactment, myths about empathy and mirror neurons, and then therapeutic action. Um, and again, I, I just love, there's something about you and your writing that, uh, you know, throughout, I can kind of trace the threads back through all of your books where there's like this consistent call to therapists to be more human, more authentic and you have a willingness to go against the grain of popular therapy culture or whatever is sort of the latest fad um like there's a consistency to your voice and your your work and so um yeah that's sort of my intro to your book i would love to dive in wherever it feels like you feel most charged or energized about why you wrote this book and and your mission in writing the book well, my mission in writing this book is, is my mission in, in every book I write. I, I don't write a lot of books. You know, I, I, I pretty much, I write a book when I have so many ideas and comments that over time seem to be strongly related to each other and couldn't possibly be captured by, say, a single journal article. Okay. And when that happens, I write another book, which is about every 10 years. Okay. So this may this may well be my last analytic book. I don't know, but oh man, I hope not. Uh, so when I when I have this narrative over many topics running in my mind, then that becomes a book. But I think that uh, you know the theory of that all all creativity is born out of destruction is perhaps you know applies to my work in the sense that. I feel compelled to write when I see something going on in the field that I think is leading us astray, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. such as, you know, the overemphasis on mirror neurons and this whole reliance on the analyst or the therapist being passive and waiting for an enactment to occur. Mm -hmm. And I just, every part of my being says, no, don't mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. And, and whenever I would read these numerous case examples in the literature about enactment, for example, I mean, you can literally see, I, I, I could put it up for you on a whiteboard or, you know, it, and you could see the analyst's words where they, he or she says, I was very frustrated with this patient. I was very angry with this patient. I was feeling hopeless and, you know, lethargic and disengaged with this patient. And then they'll say, and they clearly are aware of what they're feeling. And over time, often with a patient, and yet they cannot, they do not know. And, I, and I'm sympathetic to this because we're not taught what to do, mm -hmm. but they don't really know what to do with those feelings. And often they're negative feelings, mm -hmm. that hope, feeling hopeless, wanting to, you know, feeling incompetent, feeling despair, feeling angry. And since our training programs do not address dealing with negative feelings, there's a tendency, I think, for therapists to feel 
a lot of guilt and shame about those feelings and kind of sit with them and hope that they'll pass. Mm-hmm. But when they when they stick and that will happen, you know, from time to time. But when there's a strong feeling like that, that persists over time, something has to happen to, to break that up because what results is disengagement. Mm-hmm. And neither, neither the therapist or the analyst or the patient can tolerate disengagement for very long. Right. Yep. And so that's when that's the most frequent occurrence for enactment. The tension builds both people in the dyad are dissatisfied, restless, stirred up internally, but not able to have a dialogue about it. Absolutely. Why do you suppose it is that in all of the training programs, whether they're psychoanalytic or otherwise, aren't teaching therapists what to do when difficult emotions come up? And a lot of programs aren't even talking about the fact that difficult emotions will come up and that it's part of it. And so there's the sense of if it does, there's something wrong with you as the therapist and you need to figure that out outside the, the work with the client and come back as sort of a pure, you know, empathetic person with no negative feelings or emotions towards the client. Well, yeah, which is interesting because that harkens back to the original Freudian position that we are so critical of and that we had supposedly broken free of, which is that if that countertransference is the is the analyst pathology. So there couldn't be any discussion really of countertransference, you know, 50, 60 years ago, because if you had countertransference, especially negative countertransference, to any extent, you needed to go back and get analyzed again. And so what you just said is really just a modern day version of that. Yeah. I mean, those, those sort of tentacles are long reaching um, yes, and, but, but, and pervasive throughout, uh, you know, all the entire field, not just psychodynamic or psychoanalytic. It's everywhere. Exactly. And that's why I wrote this book too, because I think what, what historically have all of us had in common that permeates our theory and our teaching is this this sense that there's something wrong with us, that Mm -hmm. we should have been able to heal our wounded families. Mm -hmm. And we're overcome with a sense of of feeling inadequate, guilty, ashamed, if we have these negative feelings. So if you think of that as part of the psyche of therapists in general, based on uh, all of our roles as caregivers to our families, you know, seemingly with the goal of making their woes disappear and being able to comfort them mm-hmm. and wanting to love them and take care of them, then that negative countertransference is unacceptable. It's at odds, it's at odds with the persona that we've developed from the time we were children. Absolutely. And we're essentially unconsciously repeating our own childhood patterns and woundedness and all of that with with the our patients. Yes. And, and just as we felt guilty when we were angry at our wounded parents, we feel guilty when we're angry with our wounded patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've often had the, the thought and said at times, like, I think our greatest strengths are born out of our deepest wounds. Right. And it like, we're, our strengths are amplified in these training programs, you know, like the, to be there's sort of this gold standard of, you know, you always need to have unconditional positive regard and you need to be 
empathic and you need to hold space and follow the patient and validate their experience, um, which are all good things and important things, but they fall short of, of the big picture and the whole picture and what actually needs to happen, it seems like. Yeah, I think too that there's little attention paid to the idea that these are stage dependent, you know, attitudes or you know, activities that early in treatment, it's extremely important, I think, to, to have interest in the patient, to want to treat them, to be sympathetic. If, you know, if you're not sympathetic when someone comes in and tells their story, mm-hmm. then as I say in the book, you probably shouldn't be treating them. Yeah, I would, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that idea of the match between the therapist and the patient and how to make that decision of, of who to treat and who not to treat. Um, because as I, as I read that, I was thinking through my own history as a therapist and um, situations that I've had with clients. And then certainly as a clinical director now, supervising younger therapists and hearing about the times they feel stuck in treatment. And so I think there's a distinction between uh, somebody who's not a good fit and when you feel stuck with a patient because, you know, you've done the holding space, being empathic, validating their experience, all of that stuff. And then it, it hits a limit and you, and then you're stuck because really the two of you are colluding around avoiding a conflict that needs to be talked about. Right. I think that's an excellent point, Brian. Yes. That every, I think every, every good treatment hits a wall now and then. And to some extent it's because you're moving on to that next stage of, you know, moving from just the empathic understanding and communicating and developing the relationship. Then ideally that relationship changes. It morphs into something that has room for conflict. And perhaps not even just room, but demands conflict mm-hmm. to address the patient's need. And there, again, very little emphasis put on that, that, that uh, therapy is, a, is an organic, evolving process. You don't just take a stance and stay there. Right. And, so, and it's about more than just tools or techniques that are applied appropriately. Right. And the match is a very challenging notion. You know, in the book, I, I cite Judy Kantrowitz, who's written the most and extensively and, you know, was prescient in her recognition early on about the necessity of a match. But the match is an elusive thing to define, it, just as in any relationship. You know, why did you choose your partner? Your, you know, why did you choose your wife, your husband? Your, you know, yeah. I mean, it's it's. Well, I don't know. I mean, if you look, people generally tend to match up on some similar values, you know, and background issues and do better together. But you can't predict what type of relationship is going to form or what's going to happen based on that. So I say similarly, you can't you can't determine the match by the pathology of the patient necessarily, how extensive their issues are. You can't base it on um, personality styles because I think that we match up, we tend to match up best with people who share some of our early emotional experiences. Mm. Just as just as friends, lovers, other people do. Even right. though we may look very, very different on the surface, there's something there that provides that 
connection, that deep connection mm-hmm. what makes it possible going down the road. And so that's very difficult to assess. So how do we rely on it then? How, how do we know what criteria to use? Well, in a way we don't, what we know is what we feel. Mm-hmm. It's like when I have a young patient who's dating and she goes out with a guy and she says, you know, this guy was handsome. He was well-dressed. He was nice. He has a good job, but you know, I don't know. It just, it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then just, and, but my friend said, Oh, give him a chance, see him more, you know? And then of course the individual will do that. And there's still nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's not about those characteristics. It's about chemistry. Right. Right. And I think in therapy, it's, you have to have a little chemistry going to for the best treatments. Absolutely. And it's a sure, it's a very bad sign when I, I'm supervising someone and they say, well, I have this patient and to be honest, never liked her. Mm-hmm. Didn't like her from the moment she walked in. Yeah. But she was kind of a whiner, entitled, demanding. Mm. <laughs> but as I point out in the book that one person's and, and um, oh, I'm trying to think of who It'll, it'll come to me. I cited someone in the book, uh, Margaret Krasnopol, you know her from Seattle. Mm-hmm. She wrote an article and said that, you know, one person's unacceptable person is somebody else's acceptable person. Right, right. Right. So like I say in the book, to one therapist, somebody who comes in and maybe stretches the truth a little bit, you'll think, that, oh, what a liar. You know, I, I this person isn't honest. Another person will say, ah, entertaining stretcher of the truth mm, a creative storyteller <laughs> creative storyteller right? yeah. yes so i think it's it's all about how we feel about the person and i think we've been told we shouldn't pay attention to that mm-hmm. and that that we have an ob- that we have a professional obligation to treat anyone who comes our way and i think that's incredibly misguided mm-hmm. because we will not be able to treat people that we can't that we don't like, like is kind of a superficial word, but what I mean by that is that we aren't attracted to in some general sense of wanting to be engaged, wanting to know them, wanting to help them. And on, on like a granular level, a couple questions. One would be how early in the treatment do you usually know that? I mean, are we talking the first couple minutes? Are we talking the first session, the first you know month? Um, so that's question one and question two, like, do you have sort of an internal guide for yourself that helps you kind of see like, um, this person is, or isn't a good fit versus what I was saying earlier of like, it's hard to work with this person because I don't want to engage a conflict. And so I'm going to tell myself we're not a good fit. Well, that's the, I, I, I didn't really address that in the book, Brian, but I think that's, that's an interesting proposition in and of itself. Is this a person, which I didn't examine, is this a person I can sense I would be in a certain type of conflict with that I don't feel prepared to do? Mm-hmm. And if you're right about that, then should you take on that patient? Yeah, that's a good question too. I was, I was speaking in, uh, in Berkeley some years ago and, and, Someone said to me when I was talking about the match, yeah, but, you know, we have to do this. This poor person who, you know, we might not like 
if we don't treat that person, who will? Mm. And, and again, the personal relationship analogy, I say, but that's like saying, if I don't date this guy, who will? <laughs> oh man, that's funny. You know, there is someone for everyone. Yeah. You're not just going to date somebody just to rescue them essentially from right. the fact and that nobody else more, wants to date them. More importantly, it's well-intentioned, but misguided. Mm-hmm. to believe that people we don't really care to engage with are people we can help mm-hmm. give that. I say, don't treat that person. If you want to feel obligated to help someone, if you have that sense that you aren't in, you don't want to be engaged with them, let them go and give them the opportunity to be engaged with someone who can help them. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I mean, I've seen so many people who've been in three or four treatments before they came to see me mm-hmm. that were often of limited value and they had to try and extract themselves from those treatments to eventually get to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that happens with a lot of people because uh, we don't, we, we don't seem to really believe in screening. Right. Yeah. There's and I, we don't want to ask ourselves. To, we should be able to help everybody. All the yes. Time. We don't want to ask that question. Can I, do I think I can really help this person? So it sounds like you're saying a, a little something about uh, an initial affect of desire in some yes. way. Like, do I desire to work with this person? Uh-huh. And I think that goes into some of what you're talking about, about therapist gratification in the treatment itself and how taboo that's been historically, but that, that element needs to exist if it's going to be a good treatment. Yes, and Mitchell Wilson talks a lot about the analyst desires and how what a taboo subject that has been. And I do address that in the book. And I think that I will tell you, I will tell young supervisees when they say, what should I be thinking about when I'm in that first session? And I always say, think about what do you think you have to offer this patient? Yeah. Do you think you have some idea of what's going on with them? and what they might need and what they might need from you during the, during the treatment. But also think about if you are interested in them, why are you interested in them? Hmm. And what do you think this person might have to offer you that makes them attractive as someone to engage with hmm. and be aware of what, from the very beginning, what needs of yours or desires of yours are being mobilized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like make, allow those things to be conscious without, without shame, because if, if you don't, then they're going to come out sideways some other way. Yes. And as you said earlier uh, in the podcast, it's like, if you ask, and I said that in the book, if you ask therapists why they became therapists, even analysts will tell you, will give you this very simplistic, superficial answer. Mm -hmm. I like to help people. I'm a good listener. Uh, you don't, you wouldn't associate that type of self-assessment with having been psychoanalyzed. Yeah, that's true. You would hope it would go a little, little deeper. I think it would go a little bit deeper than that. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet I, I, uh, I made mention of this um, uh, online curriculum uh, with uh, IARPP where the subject matter became the analysts traumatic experiences. And I was just amazed at people just pouring in with deeply personal stories online. Mm. Therapists, analysts, 
relational people talking about their deeply painful childhood experiences and responsibility for family members. So again, it's not that it's not there. It's like, it's just people, people like to use the word dissociated. I don't, it's not dissociated. People have access to it. Mm-hmm. It's compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I feel like you around the, the idea of enactment, um, I really appreciated what you were saying about, you know, you, you had a line, what was it? Um, you said waiting for negative countertransference feelings to pass inevitably leads to enactment, but this is not the same as all enactments being inevitable. And, and I think it's in that, that section where you're talking about, um, this idea of enactment of like, well, we just have to submit and wait till we get caught up in an enactment and then we can do the work of getting ourselves out. Um, but you argue something along the lines of it, enactments don't have to happen as frequently as they do because we, we do actually know what we're feeling when we're paying attention to our own affect and our own emotion. Um, and particularly around this idea of negative countertransference, when we have negative feelings, that's really uncomfortable for most of us. And so we know that we have the negative feeling and then we work so hard and spend so much energy pushing it aside and try to stay in that unconditional positive regard space when we're not actually authentically feeling that. And that, that that's sort of what leads to the enactment is that we actually pushed aside conscious affect and then right. and then an, then an enactment takes place is that understanding it correctly yes that's absolutely correct yes that that we push it but i don't but there's a difference between i think pushing it out of awareness because we don't want to focus on it because we feel uncomfortable when we focus on it that's very different than it being unconscious right and that's where i differ with with Rennick and levinson and others who say you can't know the countertransference I think they're primarily speaking of negative countertransference, but that you can't know it until it's been enacted. Mm-hmm. That, that makes no sense to me. It would maybe be more accurate to say you're not willing to know it until it's been enacted. Yes, that's excellent, Brian. I, yeah, I, that's right. That's mm-hmm. very good, yes. I can't admit it until it's, until it's spilled out all over and I have to clean up this mess now. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, a lot, I mean, as you, you might know this about me, but I, I teach in the RFPT program with uh, Dr. Roy Barsness out in Seattle. Good friend of mine, yes. Yeah, and, and so we've been doing that for a few years now, and it's been transformative for me um, as one of the facilitators, particularly around this idea of like really needing to sort of use the clinical relationship as a muse, like what's getting stirred in me, what's getting aroused in me, in my affect, and, and that my affect is actually an important clue into what's happening between me and the patient. Um, and then finding a way to allow myself to have an sort of a tolerance for whatever's coming up in my affect. Um, and then sort of learning to, how do I articulate this in the, in the relationship with the patient so that we can work this thing together and often negative affect will come up or uncomfortable affect will come up. And in the training program, we get to this point of like articulation. And so it's the question of like, how would you say this to your patient? 
Yes. And inevitably everyone freezes there to the point that it's sort of a running joke in the program now of like, Oh damn, the articulation piece. Like, yeah, I don't, don't want to say that. Or like my, my, the patient can't handle that, which is sort of a defensive assumption on the part of the therapist that the, the patient can't handle it. Um, and so I'm curious to hear from you about that idea of like, when you are aware and you have sort of that moment of like, this is my negative feeling towards the patient, um, rather than consciously choosing to move it aside and try to white knuckle your way through it. How, how do you get to a useful articulation of that in the relational space? That's not just you blurting out what you feel, right? Um, because that's also a, a problem that happens where, where people will just blurt out whatever they're feeling and think that that's, that's an articulation. Yes. And, and to be honest, I'm, a, I'm, I've been a little concerned over time that so many therapists say, Oh, I, I follow your work, Dr. Moroda. And whenever I'm feeling something, I just blurt it out to my patient. Mm -hmm. I think, no, no, no. I, I never taught that. I have never right. advised doing that. Mm -hmm. In fact, quite the contrary. I advise to be aware of it, to allow yourself to just flow with that feeling, see where it goes and start to watch it and see, observe what, what's the context in which you're experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And if anything, unless it's, unless there's some urgent need for, for whatever reason to express it, I would say contain it first, think about it, try and look at what's happening in the room, you know, when you're having those strong feelings and try to, as best you can understand what's the patient's role that you can observe, what's your role. What sensitivities do you have? How is this maybe something tied to, to your own repetitions and to the patients so that you can find a constructive way? My emphasis is always on that the therapist needs to be in control of those feelings. You know, no, no blurting out, especially something very angry or insulting, that that is not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. or spilling your guts. And that, that that's very frightening to patients. And I don't think that that's what we need to be doing. And granted, it's very challenging to express negative countertransference and to present it authentically. Mm -hmm. You know, in the old, in the old model, like the patient would say, so you're angry with me. And the closest we could get is to be in this really disembodied way, say, yes, I, I believe I am angry, <laughs> which is, which is totally ineffective. You know, so it's, it's, it's challenging to keep that emotion there. Mm. Let that anger, that irritation come out, but in a way that's controlled and not frightening. And that most importantly, I mean, that there's a discipline to it. Mm -hmm. It's not anything goes. It's, there's a discipline, you have a purpose and you should know why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. What you hope to accomplish. But very often, as I've said throughout the years, is that, it's an affective response that the patient did not get in their formative years. Hmm. And as a result, often can't get it, doesn't know how to get it from people in the real world. You know? mm -hmm. And that's our job. That's the hard part of the job is that we need to give sometimes this very difficult feedback, both emotional and about other things we observe about the patient's behavior. That may be hard for us to say and hard for them to hear, but really just opens things up. Mm -hmm. 
Amazingly. So I, so yeah, I would say, I will say to a patient, you know, I find I'm getting very irritated. I'm, I'm really getting angry with you coming in here and insulting me. Hmm. And very often, you know, the patient who's critiquing you endlessly and insulting you is the patient who's obviously very angry with you, but isn't really getting to the heart of that affect. Hmm. And that's a defensive maneuver to critique and or undermine. And so they'll just keep doing that until you can stand up for yourself in a sense Mm -hmm. and say, I don't like that. I don't like being talked to like that, but I am your therapist. I do acknowledge that you're angry. Let's talk about what you're so angry about. Mm, Rather than acting it out in this way. Yes, correct. Mm, That's good. And it seems like in terms of like bringing our affect into the space that there's sort of this continuum between blurting versus over metabolization and explaining where like, we're, we're like, okay, I'll feel my affect, but I'm going to figure it out first. I'm going to parse it all down to all this explanation. And then I'm going to explain it all to the patient rather than, and so somewhere between that over metabolized sort of neutered form of the affect and then just blurting of raw affect is a middle space of maybe, I don't know how, like maybe what would you call the middle space of how to, how to articulate? I think it's that, that constructive expression of real emotion, authentic emotion. But that's why I say too, it's better to wait. And I tell people, I advise my patients to do this when they say that someone, you know, their boss or their spouse or someone keeps, you know, stimulating some negative feeling in them. And and they'll say, you know, I should go back and tell that person from two weeks ago how angry I was. And now I say, you know what, generally speaking, that's not a good idea. Hmm. (laughs) That the behaviorists have that right. Mm -hmm. The more immediate, the, the easier it is for the person to take it, to resonate with it, to experience it, you know, in themselves and to appreciate that you were, that you, you took a risk with them to be authentic. So it seems contradictory, but I think the idea is to maybe observe it for a while so that you can understand where it's coming from in you, but don't disclose it till that situation comes back again, which it will. Mm-hmm. Yep. And when, and then in that moment where you're having the authentic feeling, then say it. Right. And then it has, then it has power. If you come back and explain it intellectually and then people, people feel like it's sadistic too. If you come back, like, why didn't you tell me this at the time? And Mm -hmm. and then also we're trying to model for them being expressive in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So so if we go back and intellectualize something and, you know, strip all the emotion of it and come back and tell them later, Oh yeah, I was mad at you last week. Mm -hmm. there's an element of sadism to that, I think, Mm -hmm. and controlling, and that's not going to be a a healing experience for either person. Yeah. And I I think I can own for myself in some of those moments of over explaining that sort of aversion to conflict is really active too, where I want to really explain this well, because this is a negative emotion and and I want to do it in a way that's soft and gentle and that you'll understand without getting even more angry at me, you know, I want you to intellectually understand it because then we, we can kind of shut down or tamper the anger 
and move on, you know, like we yeah, want right. to we, we foreclose on, on that negative feeling. Right. And I think in defense of all of all of us who are therapists is there is something natural and you could even argue hardwired about that. You know, aggression frightens us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. And that, that that's a survival type reaction. Because mm -hmm. even the, even with some small conflict, there's that little element of fight or flight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think we come by it honestly. It's just that I think it, it, it's imperative as professionals who are devoted to helping people name and regulate and express their emotions, we need to be, we need to gain mastery over that in a way that most people haven't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how, how would you say we do that? Like what's, cause I, I work with a lot of younger or not younger necessarily, but newer therapists who are newer to the field and largely trained in programs that are not psychodynamic or psychoanalytic. Um, like, how do we help people tune into like, really, like, what are you feeling in the moment? And how do you, how do you manage that and then use it? Well, again, this is probably an unpopular notion, but one of the things I do with uh, very early career supervisees some of whom are analytic or going to be analysts, but aren't yet. Others are just interested in learning more about analysis mm -hmm. and wanted to be in supervision with me. And if I see a young therapist doing something that I think is just a disaster, I mean, not as in damaging, but going to be just not working. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. We're always afraid we're going to damage everybody. And I discussed that, that fear mm -hmm. of doing harm yeah. in the book, which is so exaggerated. And so most therapists just make everyday common er errors. We all do every day. And uh, so, but when I see them doing something that's, that's just not working, you know, I always say, does it work? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like whatever, if you have a strategy as a human being, if you have a strategy with a particular patient, whatever, is it working? Mm -hmm. And if it's not, then what needs to happen? And and my experience is young therapists get very defensive, even when they are acknowledging their role. As you said, they'll go on and on and on trying to explain to the patient why they did it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's out of that need for redemption that they want to have met by the patient. Mm -hmm. It's like you can almost imagine a younger version of them explaining to the parent yes. in the same way, like, this is why it happened. And Yep. This is why I did this. And, I, and I'm a good kid. Or mm -hmm. I'm a good therapist. I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to do this. And I, and then it, it often slips into the old blaming for the patient. You know, I only said that because you said this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, the, so now it's the patient's fault again. Right, right. So and I say sort of just in that doer or done to space then. Yes. And I think it's, it's amazing how little you actually have to say. I say, you know what? You need to stop that. I do. But I, I want, I just keep thinking if I could just say it, you know, there's this, you know, this desperation. If I could just find these words and say this and the patient would understand. I said, what understand what? You mean it would let you off the hook? Hmm. Would, would relieve you of responsibility for your misstep? Hmm. That's not the patient's job. Yeah. Well, that gets right back into like, that need for gratification, you know, like I'm going to explain it all because I need a sense of relief 
of the, the tension that we're holding. And so if I explain it well enough, then I'll feel relieved as the therapist. That's true, but it's so short-sighted though, Brian, because sure. ultimately the relief comes when you say something and do it well, and the patient is suddenly freed up. Hmm. And then the patient can stop, you can stop all this mutual defending of your positions. Right. And then all of a sudden it just opens everything up. And very often the patient will just say, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> hmm. Or I can't always be on, I can't always be perfect. I can't always be attuned to you, maybe in the way that you would like. Mm-hmm. But I am committed to doing my best with you. And when these things happen, which they will, then I I feel committed to working through that with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things people want to hear. Right. And and when you think of you know what people are are trying to heal from, all of us really are those early wounds. And so like a defensive parent explaining and rationalizing their negative behavior to their child is further wounding to the child. And and so that when the therapist is doing the same sort of rationalizing of why I did what I did and, and all of this, it's further wounding to the, to the patient. And so there's something like just stopping and acknowledging and saying, you're right. And let's work this through. And if it, it will happen again, and when it does, like, let's we'll work that through too. It's like, you're changing a, a, something on a much deeper level when you're just acknowledging and showing up in it rather than, you know, trying to explain why it happened or having the assumption that it shouldn't have happened. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. The idea that this was a, uh, this was an anomaly, you know, in within an otherwise perfect therapist, mm-hmm. I find it's very freeing to just say, yeah, it probably will happen again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's happening for a purpose, you know, like, um, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, Lou Aaron and Galit Atlas's book, dramatic dialogue, and where they, they kind of bring Jung's idea of the perspective function into that, that these, if I'm understanding it correctly, these repetitions are, they need to happen because it's, it's sort of like these wounded parts of you refuse to give up on you. And so they repeat themselves over and over and over again in hopes of eventually being caught and worked through to a different outcome. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Right. So they're they're. but I think sometimes people use that as an excuse uh, for poorly timed interventions or for being passive Mm. and waiting for enactment. They'll say, well, this was inevitable. And they will use that as, as, as a definition, as a working definition of these inevitable, you know, ruptures or conflicts or disappointments. And, mm-hmm. and I, again, that's a, there's a fine line there. I think, do we need to accept that there are inevitable mutual, you know, in, imperfections and that it, it, the treatment is about accepting and understanding those and being in conflict because that's life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that it actually can be fruitful which which Aaron was very into at the end of his life was you know ge- even with an acumen the generative qualities of it mm-hmm. you know what can you what what will this give birth to and I think that uh, that's very different than remaining passive like sitting on feelings waiting for an acumen 
or justifying, I think, disturbing disclosures to a patient because it just, it stirred so much up Mm -hmm. that it was worth it. Mm -hmm. I think that anything that really uh, challenges the safety of the relationship and the trust uh, is, is not just grist for the mill and should be avoided. And we don't want to talk about that either. Hmm. Say, say a little bit more about that. Well, I think, for example, I think disclosing too much about your, too much personal information, which people are doing more and more of, and early career people in general, the research, psychotherapy research says people have difficulty tolerating silence. And early career people, when they don't know what to say, will often uh, self-disclose. Hmm. I mean, they'll say simple things like people would say on the street, like, oh, that happened to me once too. And they'll start talking about themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think disclosing anger when you're out of control or screaming at a patient, insulting them. I, th- I don't think that's a positive experience. I think I'm not saying it can't be repaired and there might not be something constructive that occurs during that, you know, reparation process, but I don't think it's desirable. I think it's, you know, we don't talk about therapeutic errors. Mm-hmm. That term has gone completely out of vogue. There is, there is no such thing anymore as a therapeutic error. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I know that's not true in my office, <laughs> but nobody's talking about it. And, I, and I've long said that I thought disclosing erratic feelings toward a patient, mm-hmm. not a good idea. Mm-hmm. We're talking about taking it out of the room. Sometimes people will overdo talking about how, oh, I was thinking about you. And I think an occasional reference that's really mild, like like some patients can't believe that you would ever think about them outside the hour. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that when something occurred to you, like you you say something about, yeah, I thought of you when I saw this, you know, whatever, because you were just talking about it. Something not charged like that, an everyday thing. Yeah, that can be effective. But I think if you start talking about having emotional, you know, attachments, needs for the patient, thinking about them erratically outside of treatment, I think that that's extremely frightening and Mm -hmm. mostly destructive. Mm -hmm. But I think personal information in general has been shown to not be terribly effective. Yeah, well, it it seems like there's some like uh, unintended confusion in some of the literature around uh, like more of a call for self-disclosure you know, like that we need more of, of the therapist to show up and disclose what they're, what they're feeling and and this sort of thing. And it's kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, that there's a sort of a, a, you know, a judicious way to do that or a, a useful way. And it's not just disclosing personal information, but it's like, more of a, I think, I think I heard Roy say this when I was in grad school, actually, but like, it's not a disclosure of content necessarily. It's a, it's a relational disclosure that has to be something that's going on in the room between you and the, and the patient. Yeah. And, and my whole, my whole argument is that the chief value that it has is in providing this emotional dialogue and I, what I call completing the cycle of affective communication mm-hmm. so that we are giving the patient something that they didn't get in their you know, childhood experiences. But that's not the same as that we're the, we're the better 
parents, the better mothers, or the better caregivers. That we that we're better if we're better at all, we're better in the sense that we are willing and able to honestly express our emotion, so that the patient can then express their feelings, work them through in a way that they couldn't in their own early experiences, mm-hmm. and that that's invaluable. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I, I have failed, though, to convince people over time that the heart of therapeutic disclosure is affect. Hmm. Well, I mean, it, it makes so much sense that it, it would be affect because that's, that's our initial experience into the world. Like we have affect before we have thoughts, before we have language, before we have an ability to even know what we're feeling. And so I think, you know, around that idea of, of enactments, um, like you, you're saying like not all enactments are inevitable because we're consciously pushing aside difficult affects at times that we would rather not deal with. And then okay. an enactment can happen as a result of pushing those aside. Um, would you say there are some inevitable enactments? I'm thinking of like, I don't know, sort of like the idea of like pre-symbolic affect um, early wounding that never found language or, um, things that happened that need to need to be lived through together. Like, I mean, sort of, I guess what Bromberg or Grossmark are talking about a little bit more, if I understand them correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, I do. I do believe that it, it, that some of those occur in almost any treatment, but I think very few of those happen when you have an on when you can generate an ongoing affective dialogue mm-hmm. and patients who can express how they're feeling, who do know and can express it, rarely have to rely on enactment. But so, so enactment, enactment could be just uh, almost like a mutual regression. Is that yes. another way of thinking about it? Yeah. And finding a way to act on that that can't be uh, consciously known and experienced and expressed. Like, for example, I had a patient who I don't have a lot of enactments. I have trouble coming up with examples, and I often have to use uh, those from the literature because I don't have a lot of my own, which to me is proof that it works. Hmm. To you know that it heads off enactment if you can constructively express your feelings. Hmm. So, so I have to. I have to. I only have one patient that I have enactments with who who has that situation of the pre-symbolic, you know, uh, damage and, and having been raised in an environment where feelings were not accepted. And so enactments are inevitable with her. I've had them throughout the treatment with her, but I, I can't talk about them because this person does not want me to present on her or write about her. And I honor that. Yeah, sure. So, but yes, I mean, I've had people who I've treated who just throughout the treatment, there's, it's one enactment after another. But I don't think that's the norm. And even with those patients, everything doesn't have to be an enactment. And so maybe it's something like enactment is often affect's last resort. Yes. Find expression. Correct. Yes. That that the affect must come out. And if if neither person can somehow uh, express it, and if one or both can't express it, then enactment will occur. Like I had one patient who just could not acknowledge his, I mean, he was so bound up and uh, he, he had an act with me 
he wrote me bad checks. <laughs> and once he wrote me a bad check and took my money and went on a trip with it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how angry I was. Sure. And, and I really, I, it was not the first time this had happened. Hmm. And so I, we, we had to sit down and have a big talk when he got back and I let him know in uh, no uncertain terms how angry I was about that. Hmm. And how did and, it go? Oh, well, that's the, see, that's the amazing thing, Brian. People don't want to get away with this stuff. Hmm. Especially people who are committed and pay and come to treatment. They want something real to happen. They don't want to be placated. So I called him out. He didn't participate a lot verbally because he has so much difficulty, but he said, I understand what you're saying. And I said, I'm not taking any more checks from you <laughs> ever. <laughs> you pay me in cash every time you come. Huh. And he said, okay. And things went, not surprisingly, this happens regularly. And he let me tell him how you know angry I was with him. And that I was even tempted to terminate him. I was so angry. Hmm. And because it had been this cumulative effect of him doing things like this. And he got it. He seemed a little scared, but not terribly. He came back and he started to get so much better hmm. out in the world after that. That's interesting because he could trust the frame essentially and trust the relationship was sturdy and had limits. Is that the idea? Yes, and that he could trust that I would be honest with him. And there is something inherently relieving about being called out. That's true. It's terrifying and it's relieving at the same time. Mm -hmm. And this person who called me out is still there for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it didn't mean abandonment. Right. Yeah, like one of the things I always have to teach new therapists is when the patient is critical and I don't know why I come here and you're no good. Don't say, maybe you should find another therapist. Hmm. Something else is going on. Something else is going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. I know we're, we're close to the end of our time. Um, I, I wish we had another hour. Uh, this is, this has been amazing. I want to um, just kind of open it up to you in the last few minutes. If there's anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about before we close. Wow. That's a, that's a tough one. I, I was looking over my book, you know, because I, I finished it. I'm not that long ago. I finished it uh, in January. I said, this was my pandemic baby. I, ah. the, the pandemic in some odd ways was a gift to me because uh, this book is rather dense. I think. I don't know if you thought so, but there are a lot of challenging topics and intertwined, and it was an enormous amount of work, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And having the opportunity uh, to sit, like I, on Fridays, Saturday, and Sundays, I would write continuously, like most of those days, mm -hmm. and then also some during the week. So that uh, it, it offered me this opportunity to go deep and have all this consolidated time. Mm -hmm. like an incubator and, yes uh-huh and i think most of us don't have that kind of time to write you know? mm -hmm. and so it's almost like being an academic and having <laughs> but yeah absolutely so that was the one that was the one bright side for me about the pandemic but um 
I think if there's any, if there's anything I want people to take away is that, and I think that's clear in the book, is that we can't hide, mm-hmm. and I that there really is, and I, I was the title of one an article I wrote years ago. There is no place to hide, and more importantly, there's no reason to. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. It's terrifying, but beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, regarding your book, um, I would say, like, I would show you my copy. I, it's so underlined and scribbled in, and um, I, I think it's a gift to the field and I'm grateful that you had that space to write it. Um, And as I kind of reflected over the last 16 years of, of my own career and, um, and having read all of your books, there was this real sense with this book of like, almost like a magnum opus of like a pulling together of, of a lot of the themes from your other books in, in a real clear, sharp and challenging way. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for it and I'm sure it will be a reference for many years to come. Well, thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate that. Well, I hope this isn't the last time we're able to have a conversation, but I'm, I'm really grateful for your time today and look forward to whatever comes next. Well, hopefully meeting in person one day. That would be fantastic. When the pandemic is over, yes. I would love that. All right. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. Thanks, Karen. Bye-bye.